My brother-in-law was a, at a, a company that made commercials, video production. I went over to his studio. I put on a freaking tie and I did a YouTube video, basically. You know, I was like, hey, I'm Alex and I'm a programmer. I made this video game and I'm going to blah, 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 blah. I'm looking to raise some money. To, and I gave, my, gave it to my dad and said, hey, show this to all your friends. And I think I raised probably 10K. Wow. Enough to do one printing run of cardboard boxes. And then we, we you know, I, I wrote a program that would like, you know, automatically, you know, take it, take a load diskettes into the computer, you know, and, and copy them. And we, we, you know, shrink wrap stuff in my basement. And it was, yeah, it was totally bootstrapped. Welcome to the Gaming Founders Podcast, a show where we interview the founders that have shaped the gaming industry. I'm Eden Chen, the CEO of Pragma, a back-end game engine founded by engineering leaders that built the platforms for some of the largest live service games, like League of Legends, Fortnite, Destiny 2, and Plants vs. Zombies 2. Pragma powers services like accounts, matchmaking, and player data for the world's most ambitious live service games. And I'm Kevin Zane, partner at Upfront Ventures. We're a venture capital firm based in LA and San Francisco. I lead game investments both in studios as well as the pick and shovel tools that power game developers and content creators to do their best work, including Pragma. We interview founders on their origin stories, the tactics that help them survive and thrive, and key lessons for anyone interested in building the next generation of leading gaming companies. Learn more and subscribe today at pragma.gg slash gamingfounders. Welcome, listeners. Today's episode is with Alex Seropian, three times gaming founder behind Bungie, Wideload, and Industrial Toys. From putting Xbox on the map with Halo to focusing on mobile shooters before most thought mobile gamers can be hardcore, Alex has been at the forefront of each PC, console, and mobile wave. In a rare feat, Alex also successfully exited each of those companies to Microsoft, Disney, and EA, respectively. Listen in to hear how he built, then evolved each startup to the vastly different cultures at these three large gaming incumbents. Well, welcome to the Gaming Founders Podcast, Alex. It's awesome to have you here. We've known each other for a few years, but it's also been a while since we've last caught up. So excited to hear about everything that's been going on with, with your latest adventure at Industrial Toys and EA. But maybe before jumping into that, you know, you're found in multiple gaming companies. How did you get into games to begin with? Well, first off, Kevin, great to see you. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's great great to chat with you and Eden today. Um, well, let's see. I, you know, my first exposure to video games was back in the '80s when my dad brought home an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. In fact, it wasn't it wasn't actually an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. It was the Sears Telegames, which was like okay. the generic knockoff. It was like the rebrand. They took the, <laughs> the Atari must have done some deal with Sears. I don't know if anybody remembers Sears. It used to be a really big store. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, still Sears in my neighborhood. He, he, is there? Ah, yeah. It's yeah, like it's, it's, just the, it's just like the logo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. The 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 one in like where I'm from in Chicago is is uh is gone. It's like a, just an empty lot now. But anyways, he brought home the Sears Telegames. It was the Atari 2600. My neighbor down the block had the the Intellivision, which was like the rival unit. You know, to be like my games are better than yours. No, but the Intellivision had way better games. But uh, I loved the 2600. 
I still have a box of, I don't know, probably three dozen cards. It's like what I spent my, you know, like parents would give me some money to go get lunch or whatever. And I keep the change. That's what I spent all of that change on was Atari carts. That and in our, where I grew up was this little town in New York called Ardsley. And it uh, had a really small little downtown, which was about two miles from my house. I would walk down to the center of Ardsley to a store called Big Top which is like a little toy store. And they had two stand-up arcade cabinets oh, wow. in there, which would rotate out like every so often. So uh, Defender was in there. I remember Space Invaders being in there, Defender being in there, and a couple other sort of like side, side-scrolling side shooters, you know, like that. And those were really my 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 intro to games. And we, we would go down to uh, Yonkers to White Plains, you know, to Yonkers to Nathan's Hot Dogs, where they had a huge arcade. And in the late 80s, like when I was in high school, man, pole position. Do you remember that game? It was an Atari game too. They had like the sit, they had the sit down cabinet with like the eight, eight seats. And you, you eight would, seats? They, wow. they were networked. I said, maybe it was four or eight, but it was a bunch, you know, they were networked and you would race, you know, AI cars plus, you know, and those were, and those were expensive. I think those, those might've been like a dollar per play, you know, but that was so cool. So cool. So that was my exposure to it. And then the first time I ever saw a computer was in sixth grade. Our middle school had Commodore PET computers with the, they were color, right? One color, green, <laughs> the green phosphorus monitors, all just text. And, uh, you know, the upper, the older kids were writing basic. And, uh, you know, so I was like, I would read because, you know, you it was all just there. I'd read their code. Very intrigued by it. So, so you're a self-taught programmer then? Yeah, that's that's when I started teaching myself how to code. How quickly did you make that transition from coding to saying, I want to make games for a living? Well, let's see. From coding to I want to make games about like 30 seconds, right? Because that's like, that's like <laughs> you know, I looking at that code on the Commodore Pet and like I, I saw somebody playing. So like it was, it was like one of those Canyon Diver games and it was all ASCII, right? So it's got like two walls, which are just, X's, you know, streaming down the screen. And then you've got like a little, the little thing in the, the V in the middle that you're trying to avoid the walls. It's like, oh, I, I could do that. And it started figuring out how to write the code for that. Doing it for a living? I don't know. You know, it's like I, the other thing that I was really into was like business. So the, those two things and business, I, I didn't call it business. I was like, you know, I was going door to door selling popsicles in the summer. You know, when my dad got that, our first computer at home, we had a, it was a Mac. It was this Mac. And oh, wow. uh, we that. had a, yeah, we had an image writer, an Apple image writer printer. And you could get a print head for that thing that would print on cloth. So I got a, I got that and I started making t-shirts. And so I would, I would go around handing out little flyers like, hey, you send me a picture. I'll put it on a t-shirt for you. And that was, um, I loved that kind of thing. When I was in college, I would take my chemistry notes and I would put them in Quark Express on the Mac. I would format them and I would sell them. You know, I was like basically going around saying, hey, don't go to <laughs> class lecture at 7.30 in the morning. It's too early. I'll go. You just buy the notes. <laughs> so those two things kind of like were the, that was where my passions intersected was, you know, the, it, it like writing code is like just an incredible uh, way to express and to build because you can you can try stuff and iterate so quickly. It's you know software is so unforgiving and forgiving that way, you know. And it's it's such a great 
creative expression. And then when you do that in the context of a game where it's, it's, can be beautiful and, and, and it, there's, it's artistic and it brings together, you know, you know, graphics and sound and this wonderful thing we call gameplay. It really is uh, very satisfying, you know, if, if, uh, if you're into it, that's what I found really cool about making games. That's amazing. So then how did, how did the idea for Bungie come about? Were you working on it was, was other people or did you think about co-founders or you just decided to start making and selling games? I would say one of the things I really had going for me is I didn't know anything. So it, I, it was when you don't, when you don't know like what's possible, sometimes it, it empowers you to try things that, that maybe are, you know, over your skis a little bit. And so when I was in high school, me and my brother were like, let's make a game for this Mac. We're going to make a football game. This was before Madden. And that was when I started learning, you know, the how to do user interfaces, graphical user interfaces, and uh, programming in C. This was before C++, really, sort of. And that didn't go too far. <laughs> you know, we, we did a few things, but it didn't turn to anything. But that was really when, in my head, I thought, and we I had we had the name Bungie then. Now in my head, that was, hey, this maybe this is a thing that I might want to do. And then, you know, I went to college and I I learned more programming, taught myself more. I took some classes. And when I was getting out of college, I I knew I wanted to do something with code. And I, you know, I I went and interviewed at like Morgan Stanley had this really amazing tech tech program back then where you can get into technical finance and uh, you know, like uh, Arthur Anderson and the and the the consulting companies were sort of like the place to go if you had like a engineering background. And uh, I like I didn't want to take I didn't want to get a job. I didn't want to have a boss. I still don't want to get a job. I still don't want to have a boss. <laughs> but <laughs> but I thought you know, hey, I'm going to try making a game and I'm going to try launching it. And I, you know, I the things that I had been playing were you know I had a Mac. I've been playing games on the Mac. There weren't a ton. But there was one company that um, I followed, which was making, you know, they were putting out games, uh, just they had a portfolio. And I can't even, I remember the name of the guy who started it, Daryl Peck, and I can't remember the name of his company, but it was very inspiring to me, the whole idea of doing that whole, like the whole thing, like making the game, packaging it, marketing it, putting it in a box. And and that's that was my vision my naive vision was that I could do all that stuff and get distribution and, and all of this. Um, and so that was senior year of college. There was no strategy. There was no strategy other than I could put some numbers on a spreadsheet. I could, if I make a game and I could sell this many units, this is what the return could be. And then I just got, got to work trying to reverse engineer all those challenges of like, how do I make a game like this? I, who do I need? I need artists. You know, how do I get distribution? Well, I'm going to call the distributors and ask them. And it was probably luck that I had a Mac because on the PC side, things were, you know, the, the companies that were doing that were a lot more mature um, yeah, and more it was much more competitive. Yeah. On the Mac, I could call up Mac Warehouse and they said, you got something, we'll take it. And that, that's how I got my first orders. And the first couple of games that, you know, they didn't do so much. But, you know, by the time we got to the third one and I had met Jason by then, you know, Jason was in one of my classes. He was the guy who actually, when the teacher said, you can't run the software on your own computer because you need eight megabytes of RAM. Jason was the guy who raised his hand. Oh, I got eight megs of RAM. No problem. And I was like, who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, that, and so by the time we got to the third game, we were making enough to hire people. And, and, and that's when we started thinking about 
trying to be competitive with not just on the Mac, but with games in general. Where did the name Bungie come from? I just had, it's always been curious. You said you had it in your head. <laughs> that, that's company lore that I'm, I'm not able to disclose. <laughs> there, there is a story behind it, but I'm not the one who's going to tell it. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, beer conversation. All right, we we got yeah, two yeah, yeah. to right. over beer. Now. I mean, you you call call uh call Shu Yoshida and ask him because he paid three billion bucks. He should know the secret by now. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. That's right. He kept yeah. the name. Yep. Um, yeah. So then, did you bootstrap Bungie, or were you? Did you raise any outside capital or publisher money? Like, what was the environment like? Basically, back, back bootstrap. Then? Check this out, Kevin. This is the this is awesome. I've got I've got a trunk, a trunk like a big case in my basement in Chicago that every once in a while I think, oh, I got to open that thing up and like unpack. Cause it's got all the, all the shit from like founding Bungie and in there are some VHS tapes. And this is how I bootstrapped the company. My brother-in-law was a, had a, a company that made commercials, video production. I went over to his studio. I put on a freaking tie and I did a YouTube video. Basically, you know, I was like, Hey, I am Alex and I'm a programmer. I made this video game and I'm going to blah, 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 blah. I'm looking to raise some money. To, and I gave my gave it to my dad and said, hey, show this to all your friends. And I think I raised probably 10K. Wow. Enough to do one printing run of cardboard boxes. And don't, t- don't tell anybody, but the diskettes that we stuffed in those boxes came from uh, my summer internship very free and easy with diskette distribution then. So that was fortuitous. <laughs> and then we, we you know, I, I wrote a program that would like, you know, automatically, co- you know, take a, take a load diskettes into the computer, you know, and, and copy them. And we, we, you know, shrink wrap stuff in my basement. And it was, yeah, it was totally bootstrap. Wow. What was the landscape of like games back then? Who were the like main players that you were really, really interested in thinking about? Oh, Inline Design. I remembered the name of Daryl Peck's company. It was called Inline Design. Uh, they're really sort of a footnote in the, in the gaming industry, but um, there, there was a Mac, Mac-focused Mac game publisher, that, and that really was my inspiration when, when we started for like how to set up a publishing company. But you know, this was 1991, and it, it was really sort of early days uh, in... PC gaming. It was, it was like, you know, Wolfenstein, I think was about to come out then, you know, as we were going, uh, we, our first 3d game was pathways into darkness, which was, you know, it was two and a half D, you know, like a three, 3d, 3d walls, basically orthogonal 3d walls with texture mapping on it. And that was around when Wolfenstein had come out. Doom was coming out when we did marathon and, uh, you know, Warcraft from Blizzard was coming out when we did myth. So even though we were on the Mac, we we did intersect with the, our P, our PC counterparts quite a bit. I, I do remember, I remember we had long discussions with GT Interactive uh, back in the Doom days about uh, possible acquisition. Uh, you know when we were doing Marathon, and same with, I think it was Sierra then that owned. I think Sierra was the owner of Blizzard back then, and I do remember going meeting up with Alan Adam and you know the, one of the Blizzard founders and. Um, Ken and, and Roberta Williams uh, at Sierra about teaming up, you know, when when Myth came out. So it was like we were doing stuff, I guess, on the Mac side that was happening on the PC side as well. But it was like it was in that 
I guess I would call it kind of like that golden era, <laughs> you know, C- Command and Conquer, Red Alert. That was like that was coming out in those days. Like really influential, pivotal, classic games happening back then. What was the team size like when you were working on Marathon and End of Myth? Yeah, Marathon was like a really small team. It was probably about seven folks, and you know we had. Had a couple of engineers, uh, a couple of designers. You know, I did I did all the audio myself. Um, we had like, I mean, we were self publishing too. So we, maybe we had about ten, and you know, we did. We made some really rookie mistakes. Like we we would go. What are the things? Oh, rookie mistakes. I think we did some really cool stuff too. Like we really embraced community. So we would we would be online to the extent that there was online, but we would go to like the Mac MacWorld trade shows. And we would set up a booth and we would bring our, our early access demo software there. People would come and play it and we would take pre-orders, you know, and we would sort of like our own version of early access, except we, we weren't, you know, we're still not good at estimating, you know, like, you know, we, we, we would tell people, you know, Hey, when's it going to be done? Ah, I just need a few more weeks, you know, and that, that went on for for way longer than a few more weeks. And, and, uh, that, that was a, an early lesson about managing customer expectations, um, especially in the software business, but those, those kinds of community building things we, we always did. And obviously now it's like table stakes, but, uh, you know, back, back then it was a little unique to actually answer the phone or, you know, answer an email or show up in person where, a, you know, a, a fan might be. And I think that really helped pay dividends for us. How did the idea for Halo come about? And, you know, what led you ultimately to joining Microsoft and, and that becoming kind of the hit it was, obviously, at the launch of Xbox? Well, you know, that was, we started working on Halo probably, I guess it must have been like 98. We had already done a, few, uh, a whole like series of marathon games. We did, you know, if you count the SKUs, we did like four or five. Man, we did a version of Marathon for the Pippin. I don't know if you know what the Pippin was, no. but Apple had done. Apple did a deal with Bandai Namco to make a game console called the Pippin. Oh, wow. It never released, but um, <laughs> Marathon ran on it, <laughs> crazily enough. But um, uh, after you know, we had done Myth. And Myth Two was coming out, and we had a studio in San Jose that was working on a game uh, called Oni, which we released with uh, uh, Rockstar, and it. Alongside of that, Jason started up a small team to work on new ideas, which would eventually become Halo. But the idea didn't originate as we know it to be now. It originated as sort of the next gen version of our RTS game. So you know, Myth was kind of kind of sort of like Godview. It had this cool 3D terrain, but the characters were billboards that walked around, and the idea was. To really blow out the the engine, so everything was three D. You could do some really cool stuff with the camera. You could do cool stuff with with physics. Physics were a big part of the original myth, you know, and that's how it started. And it started in a different, a new universe, a sci fi future, you know, universe. And the the evolution from there was super iterative. We put features and things into the engine. Want to see it closer. I, I do remember when uh, you know Char- Charlie, one of the engineers, implemented the suspension on the the warthog, which was you know it, yeah. on a strategy game <laughs> map driving around, and you'd really want to see it, so you'd move the camera closer, and 
we had done a whole bunch of FPS games. Um, and so when we started putting in multiplayer features, that getting the camera closer, we we just kind of tried it out and pivoted a bit. And then it was a third-person shooter. And then it continued to evolve uh, through playtest and iteration to become first-person. And that the, re- the, the first time we really took it out to, to show, it was a very... You know, th- this was the first time anybody had seen like this. So it was really impactful, really cool demo of starting off in this in a room, basically in first person, running around and and seeing the the rendering features up close, and then character runs outside into you know uh, an environment that looks like Halo, right? Uh, with with the skies and the water and 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 the trees, and it's like oh, inside, outside this is amazing. And then they get into a vehicle and drive off. And you're like, Head blows. Wow. Blows. Um, but it it started as a strategy game. Fascinating. I had no idea. I'm thinking about just, uh, are there reflections on your end on, you know, obviously you talked about some of these like legendary games like, you know, Command and Conquer and, and Warcraft. And I grew up playing those games. And then, you know, Halo was one of the most influential games for me and all my friends. I mean, is there reflection on just like the the just crazy impact that you've had on the industry you know through <laughs> through this title you know it's just it's it's crazy to think about now you know in retrospect of me just processing that it is crazy i i'm just super lucky to have had the 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 opportunities that i've had uh and uh to have met the people that i've met along the way i'll tell you the thing that is that continues to surprise me in a really nice way is I'll you know we'll hire somebody in the studio, and they're you know they've been working in games, and they will come and tell me that their first experience playing games, what made them want to get into this industry, was playing Halo, and that's I think the you know the best the best compliment one could get, and is is super flattering, and I think that's really cool. I think we. You know, you were asking about how did the Microsoft deal come about, and 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 how how did that turn into a successful partnership the way it did? There was definitely an element of timing, but I, you know, I think I think it's a common phrase something like "there's no such thing as luck." There's just good preparation, and I think we were we were well prepared for an opportunity like that where Microsoft was building a console that was it was kind of based on a PC, and and we we were just pretty good at making games and content for a PC and and moving it to a, a console like the Xbox was well within our reach and they had figured out how to how to get this project that Microsoft off the ground to build the hardware and they were you know very interested and aggressive about getting software cuz they I think they had figured out you know software is what's going to make this thing popular and uh and you know our paths intersected at the right points where we were looking for, you know, we we had just maybe a year or eighteen months ago, we had done a we had done a, an, an equity distribution deal with Take Two Interactive, uh, where we raised we raised some production financing out of that and, and a distribution deal, and we had three titles in production. We knew Halo was was um, Halo was working, you know that that it, it was getting the kind of response that we wanted to get and. We knew we needed a a big stage, and we needed uh, the support to be able to make it big, and that was a big part of why we did the, the deal with Microsoft because it was the biggest stage we could foresee. You know, the launch of a new console, the the investment to be a launch title, 
And, you know, if we showed up with the right software, the sky was the limit. And, you know, it was, it was not nowhere near a sure thing up until we released the game. There were lots of challenges and lots of doubts that we went to E3 maybe, but E3 is in May and we came out in, I think, what did we launch in October? So it was like six months before launch. We had a horrible showing at E3. I mean, we showed up, game was running like in the low 20s FPS. We had one map that was, it's like our first map and it was kind of, it's kind of cool, but there wasn't too much there. And the response was super meh. Like, did you see Halo at E3? Yeah, I saw it. It was it was okay. It's kind of chuggy a little bit, you know? That was sort of the response. And we were like, Whoa. I think that's right around where we we basically took those three teams that we had running and we brought them all together to to finish finish the game. And it's really a testi- testimony to the talent leadership that we had in the studio that, 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 that the folks who were delivering on their features on their systems were able to get them to the finish line at quality. So it was, it was definitely no sure thing, but I think, I think it was, it was a really great opportunity that, that we were able to execute against. And that, that's what might help make it, make it so big. And were you guys kind of left alone to, to run independently? Was it Microsoft for Halo one or did they, were they able to help significantly in getting the game out? When we were acquired, it was after Microsoft had done a couple of acquisitions before us, and they had they had made some decisions that they wanted to back away from. For instance, they acquired a company called Faza Interactive. Faza was actually literally down the block from us in Chicago, and when that team joined Microsoft, they they didn't leave them intact alone. They sort of integrated them into their existing structure. So the artists there would end up reporting to a art lead and you know, engineers report to an engineering lead. So it it was interruptive in terms of what their workflow and culture was like. And you know, when we got there, we we talked a lot about how we were going to set things up. And there were a couple of things that we did differently, which I think had a lot of impact. One was we kept the team structured the way it was. So there was no we were, you know, no nobody came in to help us run anything, which which was good. The other was that we built out our own space. So when we got there, they didn't have a concept of open work plan. Everybody was in an office. In fact, that was very much part of the culture. It's like every engineer has their own office. They can focus, close the door, get to work. And we operated it in this open environment, which was you know, meant to drive collaboration, meant to meant to expose information so that we could iterate quickly. An engineer could see a designer or an artist implementing something and go, I can make that easier for you. And they could write some code to help improve the pipeline or or get visibility into what kind of content was coming up next so that they could be prepared to deliver their part of whatever. You know, all of that stuff is pretty important to our workflow and, and setting the studio up the way we did. It was not how it would have happened if we didn't raise our hand and say, we should do it this way. And to Microsoft's credit, I think they had... They had uh, they had taken the approach of, well, what you got must be working pretty well. So, okay, go ahead. Do it the way you think it should be done. That said, they 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 did some very good things for us besides letting us, you know, sink or swim. Microsoft's like QA and test and research uh, is excellent. And that was, uh, it, and, it went, and it went beyond just traditional tests. It included 
you know, the, the support that we got from that group included things like, you know, build automation and all, all sorts of things that would help us make our game better, take some of the infrastructure off our hands. And that was, um, I think that was super productive. Those are the kinds of central services that when done right can, can accelerate, you know, a team. And then Halo was obviously a huge hit, and then a bunch of sequels were made. I'm curious, you know, maybe for Halo 2, did anything change kind of culturally or the relationship with Microsoft, you know, now that they've seen you have this huge hit, or were you guys still largely left to to kind of run independently? It was mostly independent, but it, there was some, you know, when we did the first one, it was to release with the release of the console. So... This is the first time that we ever had a deadline, like a hard deadline. Like we'd never done a film game. We'd never, you know, so we really burned, you know, to achieve that. Like we we canceled two projects to put those people on this one thing. We we busted, <laughs> we worked weekends, nights, etc., like to make that happen. And with Halo 2, you know, that there was a lot of debate about how much new stuff should we do? How much should this be new levels and content that go into the existing systems? You know, how important is the date? There was a lot of debate about uh, when it needed to be done by, et cetera. So the, it was, I don't know the right words for, but just like that that part of the relationship was not a foregone conclusion. You know, the first one is like, okay, there's nothing for us to talk about. We know what the objective here is and what the challenges are. We just need to self-solve. And with the second one, there was there was a little bit more kind of thinking and negotiating around those things, which was, it added a little bit of stress at the beginning. How did your uh, role change over time? Uh, obviously, you and it's, you and Jason were you know founders. Uh, you know, this is the podcast where we talk a lot about the founder stuff. You know, a lot of times there's drama between founders and roles that are splitting off. Like, what, what's your mindset as you guys are getting more successful? Is your main focus still game development? Are you hiring and managing? How is that kind of shifting? What's where's your like head at as as you continue to get more successful and grow? My job changed quite a bit when we got to Microsoft, and you know J- Jason was able to remain focused on building the best possible game and software. We were a studio within a publishing organization, and the publishing organization had a lot of the functions that. Uh, we Bungie had a, as an independent company, uh, the PR, marketing, distribution, finance, HR, all that kind of stuff that we had been managing ourselves. Where we were now integrating those things uh, from uh, Microsoft. So a lot of my role shifted from I would call entrepreneurial duties, where it's like, okay, there's lots of challenges here to figure out to set up these these parts of the business or to scale them. And turn to well, we we have we have a strategy and we have a goal. I need to manage and marshal the the team that I have and the resources that I have around us to achieve those goals. And that and that's just it's a different mindset. And I'll tell you, for me, I mean, it ended up being the reason why not the reason I I came back to Chicago to have a family, but it, it definitely was part of my psyche, I guess. Like I identify as that entrepreneur who wants to build the thing. And, uh, you know, a large part of that role was, was no longer needed. And so the, for me, it made, it made the success was fantastic. You know, we would meet with the finance team, you know, every month and it was, you know, the, 
the revenue side of the P&L was like way above plan. And, you know, we almost just stopped and went to go to lunch before we even looked at the cost <laughs> side of the P&L. It's just yeah, like, yeah. what's the point? Sure. But it was it was less about building and more about managing, you know. And uh, I, I think for an entrepreneur, you know, a founder entrepreneur, sometimes that's a, that's a difficult transition. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And at some point you decided to leave Bungie and I think Jason stuck around, right? What, what was that? It, was it kind of what you just mentioned in terms of just like you've been managing and ready to kind of do something new and get back to the entrepreneurial roots? Yeah, I, you know, I felt, I also, I sort of felt like I, I needed a, a rest, you know, it's it like, is the only time in my career that I've ever taken a break. You know, I took three months off at when I came back to Chicago and we had our first our daughter was born and I was looking for a break. And I was also thinking about my future. I don't know if this is common with with entrepreneurs and founders, but I find if I if if I'm doing something where there's like there's a future that's defined, like, hey, this is this is what you're going to be with the path that you're on, I find it terrifying. Like I'm an optimist, I'm a dreamer, and I I am totally fine looking at a spectrum of results, as long as one of them is like, you know, climbing the mountain with the flag in victory, you know, there's probably a hundred other ones laying in a ditch somewhere. That's sort of the journey that I'm interested in. It's like, I would like to try and go do this thing because I think it could be meaningful. I think it could be impactful. I think it would just be really cool. I want to, I want to use this thing that I, I'm going to attempt to build. But to like be on a set path that has a set destination, which is sort of in the middle, I'll tell you that's why I left Disney because I was in I was in a conference room in a meeting where you know we were talking about strategy and I was listening to somebody who had been at the company for 25 years give their opinion and it was a middle of the road like non controversial opinion with and in that moment I looked and I went. I guess if I'm going to build a career here, that's how I have to do it. And it really scared me off. So I can't remember. I can't remember what, oh, the question was really like, so when, when I did, when I did, what, what was sort of it like then when, you know, I, I honestly, I'd felt like we had knocked it out of the park. The team was like doing great. I, you know, my, my role was less about securing the future and, and figuring everything out. I, this is a good time to take a break. Let's go start a family. And then we'll we'll tuck into what's next. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I feel like as a fa- I'm multi-time founder as well, and um, not nowhere near the success that you've had. But you know, I feel like even for me, I, I tie so much of my identity to my work, um, my company, and you know, I see a lot of founders uh, that transition into different roles. Uh, you know, whether it be chairman or they're just not involved in their company anymore. Was that hard, sort of separating yourself from? You're the company that you started, and yeah, obviously you retired and you were looking for a break. But did you kind of look back and have regret, or was it like, okay, I'm ready for the next thing? <laughs> no regret. I mean, I don't know. They just they just cashed a three billion dollar check. That that would be cool. <laughs> like. Um, I I, uh, I met a lot of my foundational friends in this industry through that whole experience. And I'm still friends with, with, uh, with them. And, and to me, you know, somebody, somebody on a couple of occasions, I've heard somebody say either about a thing or to me like, Hey, it's not, it's business. It's not personal. 
and it has always kind of rubbed me the wrong way, you know, because I mean, I understand like, oh, we have to think about the greater good of this whole organization more than an individual. I understand that. But like the idea that this business we're in making video games is anything but personal is, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't agree with it because like that's, you walk into a game studio, that's all that is there are people and the creative and the the cool stuff that comes out of it is all based on those relationships. So I sort of feel like this business is entirely personal. So yeah, I don't, I mean, I, I love the journey that I've taken. Uh, it's given, it's afforded me the opportunity to, you know, have, have a family and to have a, you know, a personal identity that's not, you know, a company. And yeah, so it's been, it's been really interesting the like I said, I've been I've been very luck, lucky to to have gotten opportunities to do various things. My like my the time I spent at Disney was a huge learning experience. Um, what a great company! <laughs> Just yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So actually. much interesting How, stuff. Yeah, what was the? I mean, Disney has sort of gotten deep into games, out of games, deep into games. I mean, they've done sort of back and forth multiple times. So during the era when you know you you were with wide load and you joined Disney, you know, sold it to the, like, what was that time like at Disney and what were you guys working towards? Disney is a very fascinating company. It's amazing. Like after I was there for just a few months, I reflected on the fact that like at Microsoft, you know, we were this game team, right? And if you look around at all the other business units, you know, all the other teams there, there is definitely a lot of excellence at Microsoft, but at the time it was, Oh, okay. There's the Excel team over there and a Windows team over here. Like when you're you're at Disney and you look around, you know that there's excellence everywhere. And it's like, oh, there's Pixar, huh? Oh, there's there's the guys that made uh, Phineas and Ferb, huh? Oh, look, there's Disney World. Like everything is like is top of its game in entertainment. And it's, it's super inspiring, like just going, going up to Pixar and see how they do stuff. It's like incredibly inspiring. But when I, when I got there, um, you know, it, it was at the height of Disney's, you know, investment of building a vertical gaming enterprise where they were, they were, they had multiple studios. There were 750 folks in New York, in the org. It was, ha- had been doing well and it was trying to scale to, to sort of own their, uh, be a whole vertically integrated publisher. And, you know, but the role that I came in was basically chief creative. And it was, I was a kid in a candy store, man. Like I had an office up on the, on the loft overlooking the, the, the whole operation. And I had the keys to the vault. I was spinning up, you know, I had, I had a space mountain game. I was trying to sign with Gearbox. I had, I had signed Iron Man with Avalanche Studios, the guys that did Just Cause. I, it was just. Black Widow with Platinum Games. It's like, come on, are you kidding me, right? This is amazing. And I think the challenge, I think the challenge for for Disney getting into games that way is that it's it it's hard. I mean, and it's expensive. And above where the games business ended, which at the time Graham Hopper, there was no muscle memory, no scars, no wins in the game business. Um, so the idea that something could take, you know, three or four years, or you might have to, you might have to chase a $25 million investment with another 20 to get to great was not really a, it wasn't a thing 
So in terms of sort of executive sponsorship and confidence to to sort of really execute on that scale, it was a cha- it was a challenge, and you know, maybe not all the teams were capable of getting there as well. So. So, you know, when I got there, it was like, you know, it was the day they announced the Marvel acquisition. It, it I mean, it was literally like that anything is possible. And then a lot of things started to change, uh, you know, free to play, but it's just, it just started coming and mobile just started, you know, happening. Some of the larger bets uh, that Disney had placed um, in the years prior, uh, you know, were taking longer to come to fruition, et cetera. And and ultimately, you know, it was sort of like a two-step pivot of trying to transition into like Facebook and lower lower cost games that were free to play, and then eventually falling back on the licensing business, uh, which is where they are today. And you know, there's really really good stuff coming out right now. It's it's just being done on a different model. Will they come back around? Will they come back to it? I don't know. Maybe the unlock for them is is looking at games as a as a as a generative source of IP, like they look at some of the other media that they that they fund. Um, and currently, it's really more of a place to 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 uh, exploit existing IP, which is smart. And I think doing it on the licensing model that they're doing now is also is is also pretty smart for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always contemplated the parks business, um, which is extremely high capital kind of intensity, the cruise business as being like supportive to their IP. And I'm, I mean, video games had, I guess, like massive capital investment, but no ongoing benefit long term. Whereas like now, as they're shipped more as a service, the thinking to me would be like, how, how is this different than just like large build outs of theme parks that? Yeah can benefit an IP. I would be surprised if they did not, if they didn't invest in some sort of multi-property metaverse of their own kind of thing. At some point. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So after Disney, it sounded like you, you, you left and, you know, made the transition over to mobile. What was the, the sort of inspiration for industrial toys? When I was at Disney, we, we were looking very um, intently at, at mobile. Um, and it was very clear in the early days, just the trajectory, uh, that, that the platform was going on was, um, was crazy. And even I, I've looked back at my pitch decks from when I, when we did our a round and it's like our projections, which at the time we thought, Oh, these are a little aggressive. We're like really conservative when you look in the rear view mirror. Right. Um, but like, just, just looking at, what was working on the platform back then, and I guess this was 2000, 2012, maybe 2012, 2013, something like that. Look at looking at this was pre Supercell, right? They're like looking at um, what was working on the platform, the the kind of investment needed to to stand something up, and what segments or, or players or genres were, were just not being served at all. That was really the the inspiration the strategy around starting the the company which which you could maybe simply say hey me alex i'm old i'm not playing my console anymore i got this ipad and where are the <laughs> games for me right. and so you know two and two together this platform is huge it's global the cost of entry is pretty low nobody's addressing the core gamer we sort of know how to do that so that's what we're going to do and and i you know i it i think it took a little longer for the the market to catch up with that thesis then maybe we we would have thought, but it's totally there now. 
it seems like mobiles uh, oftentimes in the games industry what i've learned is like there's pretty there's i guess there's like the pc console world and then there's the mobile world and, and a lot of times they those worlds don't um those people don't talk with each other and there's sort of like a uh, some wall that that separates the two in, in in many cases i mean in some cases there's that divide but you went from sort of this like whatever triple a pc console world and you know decided to to make the core gamer transition which i think we're definitely starting to see more of that that's pretty interesting in that the core market I, you know to your point was still underserved for a while yeah I th- and I think we'll continue to see that happen, especially as this generation of gamers that grew up in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, you know, continue, continue to play games. Uh, you know, the attach rate for any gamer and a mobile device is one-to-one. Everybody has a mobile device um, and everybody still likes games. I, I think the biggest, probably the biggest hurdle of, for adoption uh, for, for a AAA gamer has been you know, getting into a free-to-play gaming environment, and that has become super popular, not just on mobile, but on on PC and 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 more more and more on console as well. So I, some of those walls, I think, are definitely eroding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I, I love the Marvel Snap stuff because it was like m- many times I felt as a core gamer playing mobile games that the monetization tactics were just not attractive for me. Marvel Snap felt like they were doing the right thing by players from a monetization standpoint. The core loop was satisfying and the controls were native to a mobile device. Those few things, elements combined in one like game was more unique than I guess what I've seen. I think I, I, I agree. I think we'll, we'll see that more. Obviously mobile has been going through lots of shifts and challenges. Can you speak to kind of, you know, obviously you've been doing mobile development at industrial toys and there's there's announcements and things going on like um what's your view of sort of the mobile industry <laughs> loaded loaded question for me uh you know i think that the mobile game business is continues to evolve on the one side it is a fantastic ecosystem there's a, a lot of gamers a lot of people uh that want to play on mobile and the kinds of games that are appealing to that audience or they're varied. So there's just a lot of opportunity uh, for doing something interesting and appealing to a really large audience. It's also, it's got, it's got just gotten challenging to operate within that ecosystem because it's, it's gotten very competitive. Just there are continues to be a lot of titles that uh, come out, but more so they're getting better and better, which is great for the consumer, but it's raised the cost of, of entry for developers quite a bit. And at the same time, with the you know IDFA rules and the the, the privacy stuff that's uh, been happening with at Apple and now Google, it's just gotten more expensive to capture the right players into your ecosystem. So it's put it has put pressure from a couple different directions on directions on publishers wanting to do big impactful things. It's 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 more competitive and more expensive. The competition usually extends timelines. The the cost to market is is two or three, or in some case, for depending on the genre, it could be seven or eight times as expensive as it used to be to target players with a with a high lifetime value. And so it's just it's it has it has forced companies like I I obviously Electronic Arts has done quite a bit of thinking about how they want to approach this market and ultimately is pulling back from the standalone big budget AAA mobile game. So it's it is it's definitely changed a bit, and and you also have new you have new things happening too, like Apple Arcade, which isn't like 
quite exactly new right now, but is a is a new kind of ecosystem that's less about incentivizing daily behavior and you know generating these high LTVs as as it is about you know producing high quality content that players want to want to be in that experience every month. Um, so there's you know on the one hand there continues to be lots of really interesting opportunities, and the other hand thing there's some things have gotten a lot a lot more challenging. I mean, I'm curious. I mean, you obviously Halo was revolutionary for console and kind of reinvented the shooting genre on console that, you know, people have always thought before that would have been tough to do coming from keyboard and mice setup. And, and I know when you did industrial toys, you know, there, that was certainly a time point when people thought, Oh, why would, why would players want to play a shooter on mobile? Do you feel like that shooter opportunity has that sort of finally been kind of explored and now accepted by mobile players? Or do you feel like there's still that, that, that gap, but there's still an opportunity to try to build a sort of defining shooter um, or quote unquote original shooter on, on mobile that that might get the same respect that a Halo got, you know, on console and and obviously the dooms and the quakes of the world on PC. It's a good question, Kevin. I mean, I, I it was part of our original thesis that hey, we we are going to we're going to build an FPS game that is uh, really built for device. To complete that gameplay loop, that 30 seconds of fun that everybody's used to, uh, to, to, regardless of what platform they're playing on, but on a mobile phone. And we did try lots of different input schemes and systems. We did a few games that had very novel approaches. And at the end of the day, those didn't work. And what has been working is porting the dual joysticks to the touchscreen interface now, obviously, like you know, ten years ago, if you asked me, I would have said no. It's never that's never going to work. It's you really have to build a bespoke, you know, control scheme. But the market has the market has spoken, and that is what is working right now. And those games are huge. You know, COD Mobile, PUBG, Free Fire. I'm sure there's more that's going to be coming out that will be in that same sort of size. But do, is there something new and novel that will? set a new standard on mobile for FPS? Maybe, maybe. But I'm, I'm, I'm not the one who's going to go after that. I think, I think you know, if, if I'm, I'm thinking about what I want to do next right now and a mobile publisher or mobile developer is not on the list. That's not to discourage anybody from getting into it. Right. But... Uh... <laughs> well, certainly if EA couldn't cut it, that's great call for entrepreneurs to go ahead and do it. Very cool. Um, and maybe one more question uh, before kind of our cornerstone question. Um, you, you talked a bit about Microsoft and Disney and kind of how those two cultures were, were quite different, but excellent in their own ways. How was it like working at EA? How was it? How was that different? Or, you know, love to hear a bit about what that latest adventure was like as well. EA, I think maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago had a pretty bad rap. There was that whole EA spouse controversy and was not really a, a company that developers looked at as being a a great place to go and spend their career. And EA was one of the companies that I had never worked with until you know we did we did the deal with them about four years ago. And I'll say that I've been impressed and surprised. Maybe, maybe I surprised, maybe too hard of a word, but I, I would say the the management team that's at the company right now, I think, really cares about players, cares about uh, the product they're making, cares about the people that are making them. They're good people. That should be a given, but I think in the in the history of the video game yeah. business, it maybe maybe it's not. Um, and so we're, we're saying I, I would also say that you know e, EA has a very 
a contrasting difference with um, where I, you know, other large companies I've been at, like Disney and Microsoft, that and and Microsoft's probably this way now, but they certainly weren't when I, when I was there. That EA is very much a video game business. I mean, it's their core focus. They've been doing it for I think forty years. So you know where Disney didn't necessarily have the the experience to know which kind of pain was good pain, where to where to re up and reinvest um, to to you know get to greatness, etc. I think EA has a lot more of that experience and is um, and has the vocabulary, etc. That it feels a lot more like a you know a video game business than some of the other large companies that that are get you know maybe getting into the space, etc. Um, and there's there is a lot of history there that is inspiring with all all the all the, all the games. And, you know, and that's not to say that EA doesn't have its challenges. It's got plenty of challenges. Um, it's a very interesting company in the fact that it's really it's kind of confederate. It's a confederation of studios. You know, there's there's not one culture that pervades development. At every studio has their own culture. Every studio has their own processes. They, they you know, not they, not everybody uses the same tech, the same engine, the same repository, the same build systems. Those are all fairly bespoke uh, to the teams. That's interesting. I found that actually to be quite surprising. Powerful in some ways that the teams can really stand up and own, you know, their what they're doing. And maybe leaves a little on the table that some of that stuff really should be centralized and optimized for teams to use, but um, but different, you know. We always like to ask this, ask this question at the end, you know, if you could go back to you know the founding of any of your companies and, and kind of give yourself one one key piece of advice, what would that be? I probably would go back to myself at every one of them and say, go fast. You know, I I, I firmly believe that business is about making the best of what you got. And it's very rare that you have easy decisions to make. And if you have easy decisions to make, good for you. And who cares? You don't remember them, right? The things you remember and the things you've read about are the hard calls. You know, you've got two people that can't work together and you got to figure out how to solve it. And the only solution is for one of them to go. It's like, well, okay, well, what the heck am I going to do? Um, go fast means, hey, your job isn't to make the perfect decision. It's to make the best bad decision. It's like, what's, what is the best option here? And sometimes see, you, if you take too long doing that, it's like a lot, nothing else stops. And going fast just, just means, you know, take, take, sometimes you got to take your emotion off the table and figure out how to do the right thing and just do it. Actually, I want to ask a follow-up to that. Then was there anything you did differently kind of the second or third time around that that did help you go faster and sort of make decisions faster? Yeah, you know, I, I think that the hardest the hardest decisions are are always the ones that involve uh, people, people and personalities. So if somebody maybe isn't able to scale to where you were hoping and you put them in a position, you know, in the past, maybe that would have, festered too long and long enough where that that person would have to exit and i you know the thing that i've learned is that it it is definitely worthwhile to invest in people and if somebody is out has outpaced their scale there's always there's a oh, there's a different role for sure you know that but that's something that you can do and 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 you could do that with i guess the word is kindness in a in a way that's like hey we're all in this team together this you know what i really need out of this role is this and you know i 
why don't you come and do this because you're really good at it and uh, and we're going to go find somebody who's done this other thing before and and it's all in the service of making the best thing or making this company as good as it can be and and that's that's just maturity you know when you're young it's really hard to have conversations like that and you know maybe after you've had them a few times it doesn't ever, it doesn't get easy but sort of understand the importance of doing it absolutely yeah i think there is a i don't know maybe it's through kind of the press and all that there is a bit of a myth about kind of the team that makes it from the beginning all the way to the end and has an incredible exit and it's kind of everyone's the you know OG on the team and that's all gone well. But I think if you look at most examples of companies, there's so much change that happens and, and a lot of that comes with, you know, almost with some foresight trying to figure out what kind of team, what kind of changes need to be made so that we can be ready for the next, not just six months or 12 months, but for the next few years. And, and that's, it, it's a constant thing that the founder, the really good founders, they're always always thinking about that, including yeah, for themselves I think that's a good and, point. and what they can best yes, do. Yes, exactly. It's like, I, you know, it, it took me a long time to figure out what I liked and what I was good at intersected. And even stuff that I liked that I was like, I'm not the best at this. <laughs> yeah. I need help with that. Um, that That's not easy either. Um, and and uh, so figuring that stuff out, I think is pretty important. I, pro- I probably would have gone back and told myself to hire a, a, a good COO so- sooner than I did and uh etc well alex we've already gone over thank you so much for for taking this extra time with us it's it's really a pleasure getting to know a bit about all the history and all the all the work that you've done in your incredible career oh right on thank thank you very very flattering thank you uh for all the nice things that you guys said have said and and a uh, real pleasure to to chat today